And they sent him, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the word of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him 
Any more questions? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, we uh, see in this passage people coming to you, coming to your son, specifically asking questions, and only some of them learn. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we come to you, as we seek to know Jesus and to hear him better, that you would help us uh, to not be like those who reject Jesus, but to be those who truly are able to learn from him that we might be made into the people you have created us to be. So please help us to listen, help me to speak faithfully to your word, uh, that, that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I remember a few years ago, I think it was maybe two days before Thanksgiving, something deeply disturbing took place in the Ziegler household. I opened the freezer door and saw ice dripping, ice cream melting, and I realized that our freezer had stopped working. This was crisis time, I remember, two days before Thanksgiving, and uh, just to be frank, I wasn't interested in buying a new freezer and refrigerator, it's, you know, it's pricey, and I was panicking, and so I did, well, I did probably what I suspect many of you would do, I Googled it, right, like, you know, like, I, like there's got to be something that can tell me what I need to do to fix this, and then the most beautiful thing happened, there was on YouTube, this man with this same refrigerator, with the different symptoms that I had come to recognize, showing me exactly what I needed to do. So I drove, got a part, brought the part home, hoping that this would work, following step by step this glorious teacher, and at the very end, the freezer was freezing, and I felt awesome. It's amazing to me, like one of the great things about, I mean, I know the internet is a mixed blessing, but isn't it wonderful how much teaching we can get access to in a way that we never could before? I mean, many of you who are working professionally, you might be involved in occasional webinars where you get to be connected to teachers from all over the world who are some of the best teachers enabling you to learn. I found for me recently the, the ability to have like an audio book so when I'm walking or doing other things, I'm hearing brilliant teaching just right there in my ears, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, this is probably a time of access to teaching unlike any other in, in history, and it's a gift, isn't it? I mean, teaching is a gift because oftentimes when we're in a difficult situation, what most limits us is our ignorance. I mean, that was certainly the case for me with a refrigerator. I didn't know what to do with it, and it wasn't until teaching, and suddenly I was able to figure things out. Or maybe sometimes in work, we're trying, we're trying, we don't know what to do, and then we get some sort of guidance or some sort of teaching, and suddenly we realize, oh, this is how things need to change, and suddenly we're able to advance. Teaching is, is a gift that can kind of like free us from ignorance and really help us to grow. So I, I raise that as a beginning because one of the things I've noticed about this passage is just how much the focus is on Jesus as teacher. Did you notice that? Each of the people who are coming to Jesus name him teacher. And in fact, that's not the only time. This seems to be the most popular title in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples call him teacher. The crowds call him teacher. Even his enemies seem to call him teacher. We've confessed earlier that, we, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and all that is true, but I wonder, how much do we think about just this simple fact that Jesus is teacher? 
he came to do more than just teach. We know that. But he did come to teach, to, to free us from our ignorance, from the, the sin that hides our eyes, to, to lead us in a way where we can understand what we really most need to understand who we are, who God is, and, and what it means to, to follow him. He is our teacher. And in fact, it's not just that the gospel speaks about Jesus' teacher, but, but think of how it speaks of us. So the very end of Matthew, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. And disciple is a term used again and again for a follower of Jesus. Do you know what the word disciple literally means in Greek? It means learner or apprentice. Jesus is a teacher, and fundamentally what we are as Christians, those who are of us who are Christians, are learners of Jesus. So, so if that's true, the simple question, I think, that that is raised even in this passage is how do we learn well? How can we take advantage of this gift that Jesus has for us, this gift of teaching? And what I think we see in our passage this morning, as I said, you have three different situations that at least ostensibly are teaching moments, where at least people who pose as students come and name Jesus' teacher and ask him questions. But and perhaps we already have noticed this, some of these examples, the first two specifically, are not examples of how to learn, but of how not to learn from Jesus. And they, they warn us against certain ways of removing or keeping Jesus from teaching us. But then the third, as we'll see at the end, we actually see in that third example what it looks like truly to be a learner of Jesus. So, so let's kind of quickly go through these, these three different stories. The first one is, is the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups of teachers who actually generally didn't get along very well, but they seem to get along because they have a common enemy. We, we already kind of have a sense of, of how well this or this won't go well by the very opening thing it says, and they sent to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. This is not exactly a teachable moment for them, right? Um, if you were here last week, you might remember that it says that these, the, the leaders of the temple were trying to, to take Jesus, trying to stop him, but they were afraid of the crowds, and so they weren't able to. And so here is their idea. You know what? Here's how we can take Jesus down. We will trap him in the way that we're asking questions, and then the crowd won't like him, and then we'll be able to do what we want. Because, you see, the religious leaders, um, they're, they're threatened by Jesus, we, we mentioned uh, last week, Nick pointed out how about Jesus being disruptive. And, and I think that's, that's exactly what the religious leaders are experiencing. They're, they are threatened by the disruption that Jesus brings. Who he is and what he says threatens to take away their power, to, to remove the status quo. And just to try to be sympathetic to a moment for these religious leaders, think these are people who have devoted their entire lives to get to this position. I mean, they are like the Olympians of religious leadership for, for Jews. They have devoted every day to memorizing the Bible, to be able to get to the point that they are. They now have a position of authority and respect, something that really gives them identity, and Jesus is coming to disrupt all of it. And, and honestly, does anyone like disruption? So I wonder um, if I were to ask, so yeah, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you know what 
a Kodak moment is. Do you know what, do you know what a Kodak moment is? Some of you are nodding, and I, my guess is that those, those of you who are nodding are probably over age 30, and those of you who are under age 20 have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Because Kodak, for those of us who are in the know, know that Kodak used to be pretty much synonymous with photography. A Kodak moment was a moment where you wanted to take a picture because Kodak was the film distributor. Just like Google is like the search giant, Kodak was the film guys. And so when you think of cameras, you think of pictures, you thought of Kodak. But of course, that very thing was their problem, right? They were the film guys. And so when digital photography came, Film was no longer needed, and Kodak slowly kind of moved into the background until they filed for bankruptcy a few years ago. Now, there's a really ironic aspect to the story of Kodak that perhaps you know. Do you know where the first digital camera was ever invented? By Kodak. There's an engineer in Kodak who, who created the first one. He says it was about the size of a toaster. He showed it to the managers of Eastman Kodak, and they, he, here's what he says in the story. Basically, they said, oh, that's cute. Don't show anyone because it was filmless, and that threatened, that was going to disrupt everything. And so the people of Kodak would rather kill a great idea than learn from it because it was so disruptive. And that's, that's what the religious leaders, they, they see something that is threatening, that is disruptive, and they want to take it down because it threatens. And this is almost always, I suspect, why people ultimately aren't able to learn from Jesus in the way they should be, because Jesus is, is threatening. His, his teaching, though true, upends. It, it, it threatens the status quo. So that's what's motivating these learners as they're coming to Jesus. And, and it's, they, they, they pour it on thick. Did you notice this? I mean, they are really trying to come in the guise of learners. Um, teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I love that they're basically trying to flatter Jesus by telling him that he doesn't experience flattery, right? I mean, like, this is... So, so, and then now that they've tried to kind of butter Jesus up and get him all relaxed, which of course they're not successful in, they now kind of go in for the kill. Here's the question they ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this seems like just like uh, an innocuous question, but it is a clever one. Because you see, there were many Jews of that time who deeply resented Roman rule. They believed that to be faithful to God meant that we should serve God and no one else. And to pay taxes to Rome would say that we are serving Rome, and that's wrong. So if Jesus says, yes, you absolutely should serve ta taxes, all of a sudden, all of these Jewish followers are like, uh, I don't like this guy anymore. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Rome, he will be arrested. Th the Pharisees and Herodians really do not care how Jesus answers. Either way, he loses and they win. At least that's how they perceive it. But, but Jesus sees through them. I mean, he sees their hypocrisy. And I'm struck by how he both answers the surface question and he also goes on the attack and addresses the deeper problem. So first, he, he, he basically asks, show me one of the coins you have, a denarius. And what do you know? On the denarius is a picture of Caesar. 
And Jesus' point in pointing this out is, look, you are already using Roman currency. You are already deciding to participate in the Roman economy. On one hand, perhaps maybe you could make the case that you should only be faithful within Israel, but if you are going to participate in the Roman economy, then you're going to have to play by the rules. Look, even the image of Caesar is on the coin, which means Caesar gets to decide what should be done with those coins. He answers the question in a way that both sides will not be offended by. But do you notice he doesn't just say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He also says, and give to God what is God's. Now, why does he say that? Well, think about just the logic that Jesus just used. The thing that bears the image belongs to the person whose image it bears. That's what Jesus just said. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's because the coin bears Caesar's image. And give to God what is God's, because we bear God's image. Do you see what he's saying? He knows that the leaders are trying to bring him down, and he's calling them to repent. I'm someone who has come from God. If you really are willing to give yourself to God, this is not how you would approach me. Give to God what is God's. Give yourself to God and seek his will, not your own. The tables are turned. Jesus was being trapped, and now he has exposed them, and everyone sees it. Do you notice how at the very end it says, and they marveled at him. They realize this blew up in our faces. So then you've got this this second round with the Sadducees. And I remember when I was in Sunday school, I was taught, this is the way that I remember who the Sadducees are versus the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they are sad, you see. And, and that's, that's a, a useful mnemonic because it's true. They, they, because they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and they saw in the first five books of the Bible no evidence for resurrection, then clearly resurrection must not be true. Which just shows you when they're asking this question, they're not trying to learn. I mean, have you ever been in an argument with someone where they're asking a question, you know they are not interested in anything you have to say, the only thing they're going to be listening to is to know what ammo they have to kind of prove you wrong, whatever you say as a result. That's, that's the Sadducees. They are not coming, even though once again they come and say, teacher, I have this question for you. It's not their posture. They're just going to show that Jesus is wrong. And so they have this, you know, kind of crazy scenario. In the Old Testament law, Moses' law, uh, you have this command of God that if a, woman, uh, if a woman's husband died before she had any heir, then she would be married, the, the, the brother of the husband would marry her to make sure that she is cared for economically and hopefully to provide an heir for her so that she can have a future and, and security because otherwise widows were economically incredibly vulnerable. And so the Sadducees kind of have this crazy, let's just say that this happens not once, but six, then seven brothers all marry the same woman and they all die. What happens when they all resurrect from the dead? And there is, like, there is this snicker going on because the Sadducees are like, this is so dumb. I mean, I I think probably we understand a little bit because... Sometimes if we try to think about eternity, or maybe other people when they're trying to think about eternity, it just stops making sense, right? When we think about the resurrection, what will it be like to live 
forever. What will it be like? Can there be any meaning if there's no evil, no threat? I mean, like, and so the argument the Sadducees are basically saying is, it doesn't make sense to us how the resurrection could be, therefore it must not be true. And do you notice just how, how, how subtle Jesus is in his response? Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is not just like a, a gentle, well, I think you're kind of seeing this wrong. He's actually saying what you're saying right now not only is mistaken, but it exposes just how completely ignorant you are. You don't know the Bible which would have been incredibly confrontational for people who prided themselves as being Bible scholars. You don't know the Bible. Look, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God doesn't identify with people who no longer exist. If he's saying, I am right now the God of Abraham, Abraham has to continue to exist. You are clearly wrong. But more than that, you don't just, you're not just ignorant of the Bible. You are ignorant of the power of God. Do you, do you realize how arrogant it is to assume that because the resurrection, that eternity doesn't make sense to us, that therefore it must not be true? As if God has already run out all of his good ideas, and so the world to come has to look exactly like this. Jesus is saying, you, you clearly are thinking of God way too small if this concerns you. Look, it's going to be so different that there's not even going to be resurrection, there isn't even going to be marriage. The question you're asking is kind of a, a mistake altogether. But again, his point is not just showing the answer. His point is to treat their underlying issue. You are arrogant, and you need to be humbled because you are deeply mistaken. Do you see how in both of these situations, um, they come trying to make Jesus look dumb, and each time the tables are turned, and they're the ones who completely look foolish. That's not just Jesus kind of like, ha, I got you. That's actually, I think, Jesus' love, right? That the thing that these people most need is to be humbled because until they're humble, they will not learn. But it also shows us something. I mean, one thing it shows is never try to get the upper hand with Jesus, right? I mean, this, in a, in a conference, I mean, it's just so obvious. Jesus so knows himself. He knows what is true that he is never going to be thrown off. But, but more than this, what I'm struck with is, is what a waste these moments are with Jesus. I remember a few years ago, I had a chance to meet um, a theology professor that I viewed incredibly highly. He was kind of like the Michael Jordan of theology. And, um, and I, when I remember when I was meeting him, what did I do in my like 15 minutes of conversation? I started talking to him about an idea that I had. I started trying to explain how great my idea was and trying to get him to agree with me that it was such a great idea. In other words, I was really interested in making him think highly of me, which was such a waste of 15 minutes. Here is a person that I could ask anything, and he is just such a sharp person. He, I could have learned something from him in those 15 minutes, but I was so much more interested in promoting my own way of being viewed that I missed the opportunity. It was a waste. And that's what I'm struck with here with these religious leaders. What a waste it is. These are people, let's assume that at least at some point in their life, the reason they became these professional religious leaders was because they wanted to follow God faithfully. And here is the one that, in whose midst they are standing who is God 
himself. And whether they see that or not, they could at least realize that here is a teacher with great wisdom. They could have learned from him. But they are so intent on keeping their own agenda that they waste it. And before we're too hard on them, we should recognize that that is, that is the danger that we have too. Because as we've already acknowledged, Jesus is threatening. He's confrontational. He's disruptive. When we're talking about learning from Jesus, we're not talking about kind of getting grandfatherly advice, like make sure you look both ways before crossing or, you know, save your money wisely. We're talking about stuff that's, that's way more upending to our lives, like love your enemies and forgive those who have hurt you. Do not pursue treasures on earth. Whoever seeks to hold on to his life will lose it, but whoever gives his life up for my sake will gain it. These are things that are disruptive. And so that's the reason why oftentimes we're afraid to learn from Jesus, why we, we kind of keep him at arm's length. There's different ways that we can do this. Sometimes we fail to learn from Jesus by just letting ourselves kind of be distracted. You know, we, we might sit through church. We might even take time to read the Bible, or we might not, but we just kind of decide, you know what, I pretty much know what I need to know, and so we don't really listen when Jesus is teaching us. Because do you realize that Jesus isn't just teaching in that moment? Jesus daily is seeking to teach us. He is teaching us on Sundays as we're spending time in His Word. He is teaching us whenever we have an opportunity to read the Bible on our own. He's teaching us in our lives and when we're not listening, it is, it is such a waste. Sometimes I think the way that we can avoid having to listen to Jesus uh, is through doubts. Doubts are a strange thing because sometimes doubt can be an aspect of faith. I've seen people who really are, are trying to rest in the reality and are just struggling and, and they are thirsty to learn. But sometimes I think doubts can be our way of, of being able to avoid obedience. I remember a friend of mine uh, many years ago uh, started dating an unbeliever, and it was an unhealthy relationship, and he knew, he knew this is not what it meant to follow Christ in that situation. And it wasn't that long before he started telling me about how, you know what, I'm just not sure I believe this anymore. And whether he acknowledged it to himself or not, I, I feel fairly certain that it was because if I don't believe this, then I don't have to obey. So let's just kind of leave it there. And I wonder if he ever kind of teased out where this would go. Did he honestly think that ignoring the king of the universe who knows all would work out well for him? When we, when we have this opportunity to learn from Jesus and we don't, just like with the religious leaders, it is a waste. But we don't just have two negative examples here. There, there is a third example. And, and do you notice how different it feels? When you have this scribe coming, Jesus doesn't critique, doesn't somehow kind of upend this person. In fact, we're, we're told when Jesus saw that this scribe had answered wisely. In other words, this person who is coming, calling Jesus teacher, somehow gets it right. 
And so what is it that's different? How is it that this person gets it right? It's worth looking at it as we are seeking to be faithful learners of Jesus. And, and I want us to notice three things about this scribe's response. First, this scribe, when he is coming to Jesus, comes as someone who is teachable. Notice he's not being driven by some agenda. It just says that when he noticed that Jesus answered the others well, he asked him a question. In other words, as he came to realize Jesus is wise and he admired what he just saw, he asked a question. And the question was clearly something he was interested in the answer to. He was teachable. And it's worth asking ourselves even now, are, are we teachable before Christ? What does it mean to be teachable? It involves at least part humility, an awareness that we know so much less than we even think that we know, an awareness that we have so much more to learn. It involves curiosity, a, a longing of knowing, I, I need to know more. I want to know more what it means to follow God. I want to know more about God. I want to know more about myself. There's a curiosity, and there is an awareness that in Jesus is found the answers to that. So if, if you are struggling with something, if you're right now weighing a decision, have you said, what does Jesus have to teach me about this? Because I guarantee he does. Part of being a learner of Jesus means being teachable. But secondly, also notice that, Jesus, that this man actively listens. If you've ever been in uh, couples counseling or maybe been even like reading books on marriage or even just communication, you might have come across this idea of active listening. And the concept is that when you are listening and you're trying to figure out what to say next, you don't listen very well. So one of the best things to do if someone is saying something to you that's really important to them is to hear and then at the end try to say back to them what you've just heard. That's the discipline so that you can really be listening. And do you notice that's pretty much what this scribe does. Right after Jesus answers that you're calling us to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself, the scribe says to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that, and then he basically quotes, God is one, love him above all else, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he's clearly being active in his listening, and he's hearing Jesus, and he reflects it back to him. And so again, it's, it's worth asking, do we actively listen to Jesus as he teaches us? I have found one of the dangers, even if you are someone who has a, like a disciplined schedule, maybe you're trying to read through the Bible in a year or something where you're regular in Scripture, it is an easy thing to have just read seven paragraphs or however many and then completely forget it because you have not really heard it. You're just kind of vaguely listening rather than actively listening. I'm sure it can happen even on Sunday mornings that our minds can space out and at the end it's like, well, I think it was something about this. Are you actively listening? Making an effort to really hear what Jesus is teaching you. I think an interesting question to ask is if I were to, to come to you and say, so what are some of the things that you feel like Jesus has been teaching you over these last few weeks? Do you have an answer to that? If you don't, maybe, maybe that's a signal that you should be more actively listening and really seeking to, to know what Jesus is teaching you. And then third, notice that not only has he actively listened, 
but that he actually applies this to himself. Because after he says, and to love him with all heart and all understanding, with all strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus didn't say anything about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but that's where it hits home for this scribe. He's a, he's a leader within the temple. This is a part of his life. The, the sacrifices are a key part of the, what he's around, and he is basically applying to himself saying, as important as these sacrifices are, loving others and loving God are even more central. Yes, that, that's true. He, he, is, he is personalizing it. He's applying it to himself. Because when Jesus teaches, it's never an FYI. Jesus never tells you something just so you know. Everything that Jesus is teaching us, it's always to grow us, to change us, to change the way that we're thinking, to change the way that we're living, to lead us into repentance. And so part of what it means to be a learner of Jesus is to be saying, Jesus, as you're telling me this, what does this mean? What do I need to change? Where do I need to repent? What are things that I'm doing wrong or thinking wrong that you are now moving? How are you growing me? It involves application. The scribe is, is doing something different. He is being teachable. He is listening actively. He's applying it to himself. And that's why when Jesus responds, it says, you are not far the kingdom of God. You are learning from me. I think when he says you are not far, it's because there is just one more thing remaining, and that is for this scribe to move from just kind of being on the sidelines and to actually entrust himself as a lifelong learner of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple. He's just one step away from that. And as I close, I think that's perhaps maybe the question for us to end on. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you one who has given yourself to being a lifelong learner of Jesus? We've already talked about why that's actually a fairly challenging question, haven't we? Because to actually truly learn from Jesus is inherently disruptive. Jesus will call you to leave your comfort zone. Jesus' teaching will tell you to obey when you don't want to. Jesus, as he teaches you, will at times call you to let go of possessions, of relationships, of dreams that are so important to you that you feel like if you lose them, you will lose yourself. That's how disruptive Jesus is. But it is always for our good. I mean, just ask yourself this. Is there any person that you would rather have as your mentor, as your teacher, as your leader other than Jesus? Is there anyone who understands things better? Is there anyone who is more utterly trustworthy that you know will tell you the truth? Is there any teacher who loves you more? Because 
as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, what is clear is that Jesus is so committed to freeing us from sin and ignorance that he gives his life for us to rescue us and bring us to God. And even after dying and rising from the dead, we're told that Jesus continues to pray daily for you and for me, and we're promised that the one who began this good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That's how committed he is to growing us into the people we were created to be. Is there anyone more worthy of being your teacher than Jesus? If the answer is no, then, then the question I ask again is, are you a disciple of Jesus? And if you are, are you learning, truly learning from him? I'd like to, as is our custom, conclude with our our time of confession um, before moving to the Lord's Supper. You'll see that it's uh, written uh, after I, each time I, I think even though it's in bold, I'll begin with that first phrase just to kind of get us started, and then I invite us for the rest of it to kind of confess together, and then we'll have a time of, of silent confession where we can kind of personally apply God's word in our hearts, uh, and then I'll lead us to conclude. So I invite you to join with me. Our Lord and King, together, we confess that in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands, we have disobeyed you. We have failed to give you the honor and worship that you deserve as our king and as our God. We have bowed before idols of our own making and served the creature rather than the creator. Let's spend some time in silent confession. Deliver us, Lord, together, and forgive us only by the blood and merits of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, having confessed your sins, hear the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Thanks be to God.